Our DT Systems, the Wrap 1400 or 1400 if you like doing it that way. But it's the Wrap 1400. It's a collar that is super reliable, ready to rock, and it's super handy because you can hold it in your hand while you're shooting your shotgun during duck season. So it's a cool unit for you and your dog come hunting season so that you've got control over any situation. Anything the dog throws at you during the hunt is right there, easy and accessible. Bingo, bango, bongo. If you don't want that one, check out the H. 201820. It's the DT Systems and it's dog tested, dog tough. Hashtag man's best kennel, baby. That's Gunner Kennels. Man, let's talk about these crates because when it hits the fan, you want your dog protected. It's an investment emotionally and financially to keep your hunting buddy safe. If you'd like to get into a Gunner Kennel, slide into the DMs and we'll hook you up. But do your best friend a favor and keep them safe this duck season. All right, our number one asked question is revolving around force fetch. Whether your dog drops the bumper or duck at the edge of the water, or you failed a few hunt tests because the dog monkeys with the birds or won't pick up a bird, let me help you help your dog. Bunch of different breeds, bunch of different personalities, start to finish teaching you how to do it Links in the description. What's going on, everybody? And welcome to another episode of Lone Ducks Gun Dog Chronicles. Baby. We've got a great episode for you with our good friend, Dr. Joe Spoo the gun dog doc on Instagram. He's a great friend. He's been on the podcast before episode 54 to be exact. And we literally talked about everything under the sun on that first episode. So if you haven't listened to it, maybe click pause, go back to episode 54 and tune in. Joe is a wealth of knowledge. On today's episode, we talk about cruciate ligament tears, rehab, and hunting with an adult dog, a senior dog, a dog with ailments, and how to lengthen their life in the duck blind. So, uh, plus a bunch more. So, stay tuned. Enjoy the show. We are glad you're here. Now, if you enjoy the show, if you enjoy the old Instagrams and the videos we're putting out, if you could do me a favor and jump on patreon.com forward slash Lone Duck Outfitters. Link is in the description. And join our community. Um, actually, tonight, which you know doesn't really matter, you might listen to us a, a year from now, but tonight we're having a Christmas happy hour with all our Patreon patrons. We're giving away a bunch of cool stuff from all our sponsors, and so it's going to be fun. It's a great community. We do a bunch of happy hours throughout the month where you get a one-on-one hangout with me answering questions about dogs. So join that. Link in the bio. Next up. Our force fetch course, man, this thing launched and it's been very successful. Thank, thank everybody for jumping on there and enjoying what we put out. It's a course from hold to the finished product, taking it to the field. If you're thinking about force fetch with your dog, consider jumping on our course and learning how we do it. Any breed, any dog can go through this program. Links in the description, baby. Next up. From the duck blind to the holding blind is the food that fuels the truck alone duck. It's Purina, baby. That 30-20. Pro plan. Sport. Come on. The next is Gunner Kennels. Hashtag man's best kennel. This is like the best Christmas gift 
to to ask for or get under the Christmas tree. There is no cooler unwrapping than a gunner kennel. So if you'd like to get into a gunner kennel, feel free to slide into the DMs at Lone Duck on Instagram or over at our Patreon account and we'll get you into one. Tell the old wifey, tell the old hubby, give me a gunner kennel for Christmas. Ho, ho, ho. Next up, Dogtra e-collars. It's in my back pocket, in my hand, on a dog's neck, 24-7 here at the Kennel Man. Every time I'm training, I actually, that's a question I get all the time is, are there any times you don't train without a collar? And I'd go 98% of the time I've got a collar on the dog. So Edge RT is coming back into stock in 2023. And that 1900S is what I suggest to most people. Next up, shoot or shoot, baby. Mm, Bismuth. The old Kent Bismuth is slinging down some ducks here in New York. We got about 10 more days till our, our season closes, and I've been sending as much Bismuth downrange as I can, baby. It's been a good hunting season from Oklahoma to Texas, um, locally here in New York. Dogs are doing well. The gun didn't really work in Texas, but in New York and in Oklahoma, I let that baby eat. So Kent Cartridge on Instagram, give them a follow and just write mm, on any of their posts so they know we sent you. Next up, smoke them if you got them, baby. I made some duck jerky. I took all the ducks from Oklahoma, sliced them up into quarter inch long strips, marinated them for 24 hours and smoked them for three. And they're pretty good. It's not the smoker's fault. I think it's my fault. They're pretty good. Would I do a ton more of them? I'm not certain, but it's not the Traeger's fault. So smoke them if you got them, baby. Another great Christmas present under the tree if you're feeling froggy. Uh, next up, Standing Stone Kennels, Standing Stone Supply. Any gun dog product needs that you need, <laughs> any product needs that you need, check out Cat and Ethan at standingstonesupply.com. And lastly, Waypoint Outdoor Collective, they keep us in tune with you and you in tune with us. And now let's get into the show. All right, Dr. Joe Spoo, my man, he's back. Tell us what you've been up to since the last time you've been on the show. Uh, I I think since the last time, uh, my wife and I have sold our veterinary practice here in Sioux Falls. We both still practice within the practice, uh, but just kind of exploring some other avenues and options. Uh, raising three little humans takes up a lot of time as well. Uh, and then chasing dogs as much as I can. That's awesome. So you are, are like the perfect split of the hunter. Like, I feel like I kind of have become that as well. You've got this love for the uplands, yet waterfowl is still a true passion of yours. What do you think you've hunted the most this year? You know, it's it's probably been a pretty even split just because this is probably one of the worst hunting seasons I've had in like the 20 years <laughs> I've been in South Dakota for sure, but probably the 40 years that I've been hunting um, by far probably one of the worst and just a combination. We're in a severe drought, and so the duck hunting was a little bit different this year. Then we froze up early, which has kind of been the case for like the last three seasons here. Um, mm -hmm. And then on the upland side of things, uh, the pheasant numbers are great and um, the grouse numbers have been great. But, you know, it was real warm early season and then it just it just things haven't clicked. So it, it's been an even split, but like the fewest days that I've spent in the field, you know, probably in a lifetime. So, wow. Gotcha. What do you think for the upland birds? 
are you uh, are you doing all, all public land hunting or I, uh, is I, it... oh, I shouldn't say that i do have a couple of private spots for pheasants uh that i'm able to to hunt um i haven't had a chance to get to them as much so i've, I've mostly done some uh public ground pheasant hunting just around the house here so like if i you know we've had sick kids and so if i wasn't able to go out west and chase uh prairie chickens and sharp tails I'd, I'd do a quick pheasant hunt here closer to home um kind of my so i moved here for the duck hunting that's my number one you know first priority and then a close second it's become over the years is the the prairie grouse and so pheasants i kind of you know i know people think south dakota and pheasants but pheasants are a distant third for me um yeah. it's just they're fun but it's just i like the the wild birds and so chasing the grouse chasing the ducks is kind of my thing so Absolutely. Talk to me more about chasing the grouse because that's a bucket list thing for me. Um, you know, Andy's probably, I think she's what, six, Kevin? You're better at this than I am. Yeah. So she's like six years old now. And before she gets older, I want to get out there, man. And I want to chase those birds. What kind of habitat are you looking for? Um, what, what are they eating? Where do they like to stay in the morning, the noon, the night? What is it like? So it's a, it's short grass prairie. So just a lot of big open land and there is interspersed a little bit of ag land as well. Um, and that shifted in the years that I've been out here, you know, with, with ethanol and, and how the, the, um, farm bill and, and those programs have, have shifted. We've seen a change from small grain to any place a person can plant corn, they're attempting to put corn in the ground. And so what used to be a lot of sorghum and, and sunflowers, and those are still there, you know, there is a fair amount of corn. Um, and so I think you've seen some shift in the bird's behavior too. And so, you know, it, it's, you know, once all those crops are out, you'll see more birds dispersed in the prairie. Um, and so they are, you know, we think of them of, of a wild bird of the prairie, but they certainly take advantage of ag land as far as feeding and things like that. And so um, it's once we get snow out here, it's really tough. Uh, I, I've not had success, you know, once we get more than a couple inches of snow in the prairies to chase the, the prairie birds. Um, it, it's, it's, you know, I always tell people it's kind of the opposite of hunting pheasants, you know, with the pheasants, it's down in the draws, the thicker, the cover, um, you know, with the, with the prairie birds, you're oftentimes up, up on top of ridges and you don't, you don't want cover much over your knees. It starts getting up to your knees and, and that's getting to be too high. Cause they like to, to see what's coming so that they can bail out. So it's, it, it's not for everybody. It's funny. You know, I'll, I'll bring guys that, you know, are avid pheasant hunters and we'll walk all day and maybe shoot a couple of birds and, and, you know, they'll say, Oh, that was enjoyable, but like never asked to come back. Um, yeah. the other thing is, is people will look at me like, Oh, this is really easy walking because it's not, you know, a cattail slough, but you're not walking for 20 or 30 minutes. It's you're, you know, you're essentially walking sun up to sundown. And so, you know, it's, you get back to the motel that night and that, that guy that said it was easy at the start of the day, you know, you go out for a beer and burger and like before the 10 o'clock news is on they're sawing logs big time. So it's, yes. it's just a little more physically taxing. Um, you know, we see, we get a lot of pressure early in the season cause we're, you know, the prairie birds are kind of some of the first upland seasons. And so we get a lot of Southern guys, Eastern guys coming out to, to chase them. And so, and I'm not a crowds guy, so I like the later season. So it's a, it's, it's, you know, open country without a lot of people um, in solitude, which is kind of what I like to do is chase the dogs with by myself a lot, or maybe, you know, my dad or one other buddy. So. Yeah. Very cool. How many miles do you think you put on and how many miles does the dog put on? Yeah. So on I, and I, I track it. I haven't as, as like neurotic as I used to. 
you know, but like, um, so my, my young male setter right now, he, he can start the day with a, he usually keeps between a 20 and 25 miles per hour for the first hour to two. And so, so he's laying down some, some miles. Um, the flip side is that he does, he had, and I thought as he got older, he'd pace himself. He's usually good for about one more field in the day versus like my older setters. They, they were pretty good. Like I, I could hunt them every other field in, and they'd put in that, you know, 20 to 40 miles a, a day would be kind of their, their mileage. Um, obviously the flushing dogs way less, you know, so like boomer, the, the young male will put on, you know, 12, 15 miles on his first loop and, and, and then I'll hunt the lab and she maybe puts, you know, three to four miles in the same amount of time on the ground and then i'm probably you know closer to what the lab's covering so wow that's unbelievable yeah um i feel like since we've last spoken well actually we talked the other day but i didn't ask you you know what dogs do you have now that you own uh versus i think some of them are your buddies that you kind of snag during hunting season and pair up with yeah so kind of so it uh um right now i, I have a uh a, a six-year-old setter in an almost four uh american field trial lab which was a dog i said i'd never own um and and how that came to be is i have a really good friend um who who runs field trial dogs and it was a dog that wasn't quite worthy of the trip down south last year my cocker was getting older and, uh, I, I kind of limited her later in the duck season. And so, uh, Sarah was very gracious and sent her out to, you know, allow me to hunt. The dog would get, you know, wild bird action and kind of win for everybody. And, uh, my daughter absolutely fell in love with the dog and there was no sending the dog back. And so we had to come up with the price that that dog was <laughs> going to be a permanent resident of our house. And she's been great. Like I, it, it's probably the biggest plate of crow I've ever eaten in my life. Yeah. I, I was 1000%. This would be something I'd never owned because, because of, of what I see in the practice, right? Like we'd get these field trial labs in and, and like, just, you know, the guy would have a 10 year old dog that just bouncing the whole time where I were trying to do an exam. And when you think he's going to slow down, you know, well, it's <laughs> 10, probably never. And, and yeah. they just would drive me crazy. Um, and this dog is great. Like off switch in the house, like, I mean, high, high drive out in the field. Um, it was, it, it was interesting, you know, like playing the white coat game. It, it was a transition the first year, like her, you know, we'd shoot and she'd be like, what the hell? I don't see any white coats, you know, out there throwing birds or why aren't you wearing a white coat? And same mm -hmm. with handling, you know, I'd whistle stop her and she'd turn around and be like, you sure you know what you're doing? Because you're not mm -hmm. wearing a white coat. Uh, mm -hmm. But then it, the, the, the real switch went off dropping a couple of big candidates in front of her. And then it was just like, holy crap, I like this game. Um, nice. and, and this year was great. I mean, she just, she's, she's a phenomenal dog, like just phenomenal. Like I wouldn't change a thing about this dog. Awesome. And, it, and so both the, the field bred American lab, and then, you know, I always kind of poo pooed people that, you know, bought finished dogs or started dogs as cheating. Cause I've trained every dog I've owned, but where I'm at in life right now with three little kids, like, this was the, like, I am in completely indebted to my friend for this arrangement that we worked out because it was perfect for the stage of the game I'm in right now. So that's a long blithery answer to, I'm, I'm running a setter and a, a, a lab. And then um, earlier this year, we, we, we lost two of our dogs within a couple of months um, to, to old age. So. Yeah. Let's talk about them. I, I want to talk about that. Um, Let's talk about the older setter first. Okay. And 
what it was like in her young age, what she was like hunting over and having her in the house and some good stories about her. Sure. So uh, literally the sweetest creature that God ever created. Like this dog just like as like never had a mean bone in her body to any living creature. Um, even, and I'll, I'll share a story later if she did have a love for jackrabbits, but uh, uh, <laughs> just a, a sweet, sweet dog. And uh, yeah, she just, it, it, one of the most athletic specimens that I've had. So Boomer, the young male has wheels and he can run. Belle was, was more finesse and like, she could cover a lot of ground all day long. Um, my dad would always call her the Michael Jordan of, of my dogs because she just was like on another level with everything she did and just real, real agile. Um, and just, she was just a good dog. And, and the very first setter I had, um, right after I graduated vet school, uh, I, I had, I struggled with her early on and, and I had, you know, solicited advice from a, a pro trainer. I, I took her over there one day and he's like, she's just a black hearted little bitch. You should just get rid of her. <laughs> and, and, and the switch went on like between two and three. And so, you know, it was a multi-year thing before I really got that dog. And she had a great career bell. Um, the very first year she was seven months old and I, I used to meet a, a dog trainer that would come out from Pennsylvania to run dogs on the prairie up in North Dakota Mm -hmm. And I'd go up and photograph his dogs and, and then hunt my dogs, um, you know, in the mornings and photograph and run his dogs with him in the afternoons. In one year, I forget how it went down. I think it was my chest peak had, had been diagnosed with degenerative myelopathy. And then my, my old setter, I forget, she had some like near death experience every year. And so I had two, two old dogs that were sick. And so I went up to North Dakota with a seven month old dog and she just was phenomenal from day one. Like I shot more birds over her that first season than I did the first three years of the other setter's life. And so she was just wow. kind of a prodigy type of dog where she was just great. Um, and in the same way in the house, I mean, she was just an affectionate dog. The kids loved her. I mean, she, for the last couple of years of her life, slept on my daughter's bed every single night. And I mean, it just, she was just the perfect dog from a sweet and athletic attitude. Um, everybody at the clinic loved her. Once we bought the clinic, you know, I'd always take the dogs with me every day and, and like, she'd actually give hugs where she'd curl her arms around you. And if one of the girls at the clinic was having a bad day, I'd find them in my office and, and, you know, they'd be hugging Bella and she'd be giving them a hug to brighten everybody's day up. So she was just, just a perfect dog. That's special, man. Yeah. Um, talk about training a little bit. You said that other than this black lab, you've done all the training. Yep. What is it like? For someone out west training a dog, I'm assuming you did a lot of wild bird work or allowed the hunting yeah. season to do training. What, what was that no, like? So not really, actually. So um, it, it's uh, I, I'm not a versatile dog guy. I'll just preface this with this next statement. <laughs> but I helped start the NAVDA chapter here in town, and it was purely for access to training land and access to birds. And so, um, I would go and, you know, and help the club and, and help with training days and do all that. And, you know, I didn't do any water work with her. I didn't do any descent drags, but every weekend I wanted to, I was able to get her on training birds out in setups and had gunners and stuff like that. So, um, it, it the, the NAVDA group here in, in Sioux Falls, uh, has been phenomenal. They've always had training grounds really close to Sioux Falls, they put in massive bird orders. Uh, a number of the members have uh, homing pigeons that they actually race, and then they kind of lease to the club. And so it, it, it's actually the perfect 
pointing dog training situation here in town. Sweet. Um, and so that with her, I, I did a lot of that. Um, Boomer, on the other hand, was more on the fly. Like it was that we got to that first season. I'm like, I just hope to God you have as much natural talent as I think you do. And he, mm-hmm. and he did. I mean, it was, there was very minimal training and that was more on the fly. Like, let's see what happens with wild birds being very forgiving that first season, knowing that there were going to be mistakes and, you know, letting him sure. kind of figure it out. So um, they've been on both ends of the, of the spectrum. Very good. Were the birds you were using in the NABDA chapter chuckers or quail or chuckers and pheasants mainly. Yeah. A oh, lot okay. of chuckers. So yeah. 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 No doubt about it. I have a hatred for chuckers. And I do too. It's... Like <laughs> I do too. I, I really hate they, them. They, yes. They, it, it's, and that was, you know, we trained in the morning so the ground would be wet. You get those wet feathers. Mm-hmm. And like, it was just like, can I walk around and do everything other than fly in what you want me to do to train this dog? And so, hey, yeah, it's, I, I hate them as well. I, I hate them. So I have a story. I, I did a NABDA dog way back in the day. And I, I mean, this is like pre owning a kennel uh facility this is pre real bird crates like i i had like makeshift cheap stuff because i was broke as a joke and the chuckers i I probably bought let's just say 50 i mean there was a ton right and i get them in this crate and i go to my buddy steve's house and we've got to now build a chucker pen so we do (laughs) we spent all night like you know truck headlights on this thing we build this perfect little chucker pen and i show up maybe not the next day but it wasn't very long after and i see a chucker in his yard and and so i get my camera out and i'm videoing i'm like steve look at this like little wily son of a gun he found out how to get out and as i pull around his little backyard to where the pen was there were no chucker in the pen so if you're talking like $8 a bird <laughs> times 50 and I'm broke as a joke and I've got a NABDA test coming up, I'm like, what do we do here? So that sucked. That was my one experience. And then they're so wily that when you stick your hand in the bag to get them, one pops out, the one in your hand's going crazy. And I can't, I just hate their guts. Yeah, Not let, let alone that they, they walk away and right. all sorts of stuff. Yeah, that's I'm I'm a uh, uh, on a couple of birding lists on the internet. It's it's always comical to me when you know someone will post a picture on the peak of their roof, like what is this bird? I've never seen this bird in the area, and it's like man, some dog trainer's eight dollars is sitting on your roof. <laughs> exactly, dude. It, it it grinds my gears. Um, all right, so let's talk about a little bit of your expectations of a pointing dog out in the field their first and second season are they are you pretty staunch on whoa and steady to wing shot fall or is it point you get yeah like in an ideal world that's always what you know was like with bell i i was probably more because i had those training opportunities with boomer it's just been like you know, he's steady up to flush and that's, that's kind of what I'm getting in, in, and that's on me. And that's, 
part of what I like about training my own dogs, right? Like the successes and the failures are a responsibility of one guy and, and I can own both of them. Right. And, and, and for me, it's just been the different stages of life, like those expectations, you know, and that's same way with like, like the cocker, you know, she, she was, I field trialed her. And so she was, you know, steady to flush all of that early in life. As she got older, you know, that I don't say it went completely by the wayside, but I just became less focused on that polishness. And now, you know, with a, with a dog that came to me, you know, I think she's a couple of points from being qualified all age. I'm back to being a little bit more neurotic of let's play the game correctly and not undo, you know, what you came to me with. And so it's, I, I think the first setter really set me up to be more realistic about expectations. You know, I think, you know, as you probably get the questions all the time, everybody wants this black and white timeline of this is exactly what, you know, you're, you should do. And this is how your dog will turn out not realizing we're dealing with living creatures. Right. And that you have to train and, and accept what this individual dog is giving you. And sometimes it's a pile of crap for a while that you're getting (laughs) out of that dog. But, but, you know, if you have that time to invest in them and, and that's where like, I'm not, it, no, you know, dog comes into this house, they're here forever, good or bad. And so it's not like I can just wash it out and start over. And so it, she really taught me like, you know, most of these dogs, if they're bred well, will get it if, if you give them that opportunity. And, and, and she was a great dog. I mean, you know, it was just one of those that I just kept plugging along and, and, and then the switch finally went off, you know, in that second to third season where it was like, Oh, we're here to hunt together. <laughs> but that's cool. So it's, it's, what are, it's for me, it's, it's life, you know, life stages in, in what the dog gives me. One of the things that I've learned to discuss with new owners with their new hunting dog, like sent it to me. They think it's going to be perfect when it gets home and it may be really good. Right. But we, no matter how well you train it and prepare it, a hunt is so unpredictable right? that it's hard to expect perfection out of the dog because I don't know whether the duck's coming this way, that way, this way, that way, or where the pheasant's going to flush out of. I mean, there's so many variables that it's inevitable that even a seasoned dog, a veteran, makes mistakes and bumps birds or breaks or what what have you. And I think the other side of that is is that, you know, at the end of the day, none of us hunt as much as we'd like to. Right. And so it's having that discipline or an extra guy with you. That's going to do all the shooting to be able to constant, you know, and so I go duck hunting by myself or out on the prairies by myself. It's really difficult to work on, whoa, plus shoot that bird and make sure it all, you know, and so it's, 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 it's one of those things like, what what do you actually have the ability to do in that window of time that's usually pretty narrow for hunting and that's i I have a hunting buddy um that's super neurotic the other way you know he's always redshirted the dog like there is zero chance of breaking like he's you know he's very diligent like it ain't gonna happen if i don't get to hunt this dog until you know two or three years old and and i'm not that way like i just i you know i figure each season's about 10 percent of that dog's hunting career and it, mm-hmm. I want to try to make that work somehow. And so it's, it's, it's again, being realistic to have that truly polished dog. Once you go to the unpredictability of hunting, you almost need to keep the gun in the, in the truck and just focus on the dog and let buddy shoot. And, and not all of us have that discipline or get out enough where we can justify, you know, doing that. So 
Yeah, great point. What's a real memorable hunting experience with Bell the setter? So the uh, the the jackrabbit story. Um, she was in that first season. She was a skinny little dog, and so I, I I've always been afraid of losing dog. Like you know, this was pre GPS days, um, and and I had bought a set of the old tracker collars, like the coonhound guys ran, but I, I didn't know how to operate it, and she was just a, a pup. And so I had two collars on her. I think uh, uh, the dog for T and B, which is a bigger collar for a smaller dog like that. And then like I had like a, uh, a smaller sport dog had a little collar and we kick up a jackrabbit and she takes off and neither of those collars like are making a connection to get her to stop. And And she would get alongside that jackrabbit and just look at him in the eye. And, and so I start running after her and there's one more rise and then she's gone out of sight and i had shed my vest i had shed my gun and i'm sprinting across the prairie screaming and she comes up over that rise and hit a hole and went end over end and when she stood up the jackrabbit had cleared the rise and she's like oh and comes just walking back to me like no big deal and like just Uh the happiest look on her face and I get back to my buddy and, and he goes, you know, if it was me, I would have probably used one of those collars and I just <laughs> to punch him in the nose. And so that spot has forever been called Jackrabbit. So like when we hunted he, or, you know, he goes out West honey, he's like, well, we did pretty good on Jackrabbit. Like that's the name of the spot now. And throughout her life, like at least once a season, we'd kick up a Jackrabbit and she'd like, look at me, look at it, look at me and just go and take off like <laughs> you know and a lot most of the time she wouldn't but at least once a season she'd have to run a jackrabbit and she didn't want to catch him it she'd pull alongside him if she could in in that like she had no desire to catch the things it was just like it was a, a drag race with her just loved to chase jackrabbits just loved it <laughs> that's so cool dude that's a great story great story um did you ever take her anywhere else in the country to hunt other species I didn't. So just the, the Dakotas in Iowa with her. Um, and so my, my older setter, um, I was fortunate to, you know, I, I got her when I was in Northern Minnesota. So we chased grouse and woodcock. I took her down to, to, um, Missouri quail hunting. Um, but it's just how life has worked the last couple of years. I've just done so much of my hunting close by here. And, And honestly, it's, it's, you know, lining some of that stuff up and, and figuring it out, you know, it's just, with what the opportunities that I have here and why I live here is that I can go chase wild birds, you know, endlessly. And so it's, it's, it's good and bad. It keeps me here. It's bad because I don't get to experience some of that. And, and perhaps when the kids get older, um, I'll, I'll get back in that mindset. You know, there was a time when I wanted to, you know, shoot all the upland species and chase that dream. But right now I'm pretty content chasing Dakota birds. That's really cool. You are in the destination spot, right? <laughs> yeah, right. That's cool. What, uh, tell me about the cocker. So, um, she, she hunted up in two, two weeks and, before and, we... and why a cocker. So I, my first dog, uh, while I was in vet school was a Chesapeake Bay Retriever. And that's, I mean, I grew up like that's, that was the duck dog. Right. And, and she was my dog's soulmate. Like that dog could hunt sunrise to sunset. Like, you know, after graduation, when I'd have vacation, I take two weeks off in November and we'd come back to Northwest Iowa and come out to South Dakota and like literally like get up in the morning, hunt ducks. And then we'd hunt du- our pheasants in the afternoon. If we hadn't limited in the morning, we'd hunt ducks in the evening and just day after day. And like, she just 
had no quit, never got injured, like just was straight on, like just lived to hunt. Um, she developed degenerative myelopathy, which is a dog equivalent of Lou Gehrig's disease. Um, anybody that's seen me give my speeches, I, I have a picture of her chasing a prairie chicken in a wheelchair where the wheelchair is sideways. And I was a part of the health committee of the American Chesapeake club at the time. And it was just like when you find any new health problem in a breed, you have a lot of breeders that want to put their head in the sand and say, it's not me. Um, you know, I think we're gonna have another one of those moments in the lab world with this cruciate ligament test out of Wisconsin. And, um, I just, I, I couldn't go back to the breed having experienced that it was horrible watching this like super athletic dog, um, mentally sharp as could be. And just her body started to, to waste away from the back end to the front end. And so I wanted something different. Um, growing up, uh, Dave Cardi always wrote for Gundog Magazine, and he always had a Springer out in Montana that he'd hunt late season. Like uh, I remember the Gundog in, in the Wildfowl articles with that dog um, in a neoprene vest, you know, hunting Golden Eyes late season out there. And I was like, maybe I'll go the the Spaniel route. And so I had looked at um, the Boykins, obviously you think of the duck hunting spaniel, you think of the Boykin and it, there's a lot of health issues within that breed. I think more than the, the affectionados want to admit, uh, because they love the bleed breed and you get kennel blindness. And so I started talking with some of the, the spaniel guys, um, here in the Midwest and went to a couple of trials and like, I just, I fell in love with them and, and these cockers are just a, a freaking blast. Like they are, I, I, she, Lily was a dog that like, I probably wanted to kill three or four times a day because she was mischievous, but also made the day like the best day ever because she was such a cool dog. Uh, and that was up until the end. Like you wouldn't have mm -hmm. known that this dog was later in life, uh, probably about four years ago, we had an episode out duck hunting. I, I had hunted them out West the day before we had hunted grouse and, and I had shot my limit with my young dog and I took the two old dogs out and, and so not even with a whistle. And so I knew she could hear the next morning, a, a, a friend had lined up a duck hunt. And it, I mean, the, one of those where there was ducks everywhere, everywhere. And I thought she was just jacked and like started ignoring whistles. And like, as it, the, the hunt unfolded, I was like, I, I said, I said, Evan, I think she's deaf. And like, she was sitting next to me on the bucket and I just wailed on the whistle and didn't flinch. And just, she went deaf and had idiopathic, um, hearing loss, like went stone deaf, deaf. She regained it, but just kind of marginally. And so, um, I ended up, uh, limiting her later in life. So it's a long blithering story of, I went with Cocker because I didn't want to, I didn't want to go back to the Chessies at that point in time. Um, mm -hmm. and, and the only color I didn't want was white and she was a pure white Cocker, but the, the, <laughs> the breeding was just too good to pass up. So she was sure. out of, um, the only Cocker to win, the the, the national in Canada, which the Springers and the Cockers compete against each other in Canada and, and, and her, her sire won up in Canada. And so, I couldn't pass up and she was, it was funny. I didn't duck hunter actually the first couple of years because when Emma passed away, it just, it, I was hunting the prairie grouse a lot. I, I, you know, I felt like I was cheating on Emma's memory if I duck hunted without her. Uh, and then when, when Lily turned it on duck hunting, like I was like, why did I wait? She was so like her blind manners, still probably the best dog that I've had as far as blind manners. And she was great on dog on ducks. Like the, the, her issue like bigger late season ducks that could swim hard. She'd have trouble mm -hmm. swimming them down as fast as like a lab or a Chessie, but just, she was a phenomenal duck dog. 
That's really cool. You said you did a little of the trials with her. What was that like? Um, I, so I think anybody that's never done spaniel trials, like I think they're probably the coolest group of people to be around. Like, um, I, you know, I've, I've done a little bit of it all, you know, I've done some of the pointing dog stuff, uh, the NAVDA stuff, helping out with that club. The retriever world is where I started. I was, you know, helped with a field trials club in vet school when I first got the Chessie, been with the HRC club. The, the spaniel stuff is great. Like it's just, they're just really, really good people. The dogs are fantastic. Um, I, yeah, like if you get an opportunity to go to a spaniel trial, being in the dog world, I a thousand percent would. Like they're just super, super nice. And, and not that you have, you know, not that everybody else isn't. It's just like, varying degrees if you play the dog games like you see the differences in the mm-hmm. versatile dogs versus the pointing dog guys versus the retriever folks the spaniel folks are it, it's great the dogs are great like they are just super cool dogs nice so yeah. in the competition days what did did you get some accolades with her what was that yeah so her first trial first puppy stake i ever ran her in she should she should have got first and it was a handling error so um i i had her too close to the line like as i was you know there wasn't a true holding blind and the dog in front of us uh missed a uh a retrieve and like she had it marked and saw that the dog did not make that retrieve they didn't start us further down the course because that dog dropped right away and she mm-hmm. went in that area of the fall without like in, in, in everything else she did perfect but she didn't come back on the, on the first whistle and uh, and the rest of the you know had she just not seen that she would have won the, her very first trial cool. but, yeah so no she was she was a cool little dog cool. what's the most memorable retrieve or hunt with her so um there's quite a few like with her what like she did a lot of just cool stuff but like the one that probably took years off my life is we were duck hunting and I, it was a pretty big wadi body of water and i dropped a uh i forget what it was it might have been a mallard out a ways and she took off after it in that thing swimming and diving swimming and diving and she was way out in the middle and i was i started panicking and I had left my transmitter in the truck and I could not call her off that retrieve and like mm-hmm. it just swimming and diving, swimming and diving. I kind of ran out into the water and there was a ledge and, you know, almost went in. I'm like, don't be, you know, we all know the story of the duck hunter that dies trying to save his dog. And so I right. th- sat there like, what in the hell am I going to do? And it was quite a walk back to the truck. And I'm like, do I go get the transmitter? How do I do this? And, um, she got to where, you know, that the bird surfaced like right behind her. And so she spun around and that bird went under and she went under after it and came up with it and came back. Nice. And when she got back, it wasn't like she was, you know, like, she's like, you know, that just normal day for me, but but like, I was just like, I thought I was going to lose my dog. I thought it was all over. And then to make a diving retrieve like that. And, and then, you know, we continued to hunt. I was just like, son of a buck. So that, that by far was so cool. That I think of that one every season. That's really cool. Talk about as Memphis is getting older and her arthritis is legit kicking her butt. Mm-hmm. She had anaplasmosis a few years ago. Right. Which if you don't know what it is, folks, it's a tick-borne disease that basically attacks the joints. <laughs> Maybe you could dive into it for a 30-second overview better than sure. I can because you're a veterinarian yeah. and I'm a nobody. <laughs> so I don't, don't know about that. The, uh, so it is, so anaplasmosis and Lyme are the reason that like, I have never taken my dogs back to Northern Minnesota hunting. And so I practiced up, uh, in Brainerd, Minnesota 
At the time, Crow Wing County had the highest incidence of human tick-borne disease cases in the entire country while I was up there. And I didn't know how veterinarians made money without ticks because like all we did was treat dogs with anaplasmosis in Lyme. Um, at the time, it was still called Ehrlichia. And so it was, it, 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 uh, it was way back in the early days of it. And like you say, it, it predominantly, you know, we think of it as attacking the joints, causes these dogs to be painful. I mean, there would be dogs. I'll never forget. I had a short hair come in once that walked in on its front legs. Its back legs were so painful that, you know, like you see those America's Funniest Home videos of the little dogs, like a chihuahua that can walk on its front legs. This was a short hair that was that painful that he was walking on his front legs. And yeah. and they're just miserable. And, and um, both of them can attack other tissues and so the 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 vet up there that i practice with um he, he almost died like he, they were on uh visiting his family in ohio and came back and he ended up at the hospital and like was having heart issues and and, and it ended up being that he had anaplasmosis and so it you know while we think of it as joints both those tick-borne diseases can attack other tissues um oftentimes there's co-infection with lyme and so you know even though it, it you know they have anaplasmosis. We worry about Lyme affecting the kidneys. And so they're just nasty tick-borne diseases that um, cause a lot of damage with these dogs. Yeah. Yeah. She's basically never been the same. Yeah. And this year I've hunted her a few times, but I'm way more thoughtful of how and where I hunt her. Sure. And the first hunt was not particularly cold, not particularly hard. I killed three birds. So not crazy retrieves or distances or anything at all. And she couldn't even get up off the ground that night. Right. So it's, it's tough. And well, with your horrible. experience, Oh dude, it's, it is really bothering me. It, mm -hmm. it sucks. Um, as your two dogs have aged, what did you do to help them recover, help them beforehand? What are some advice? What's some advice you'd give someone like myself? Yeah. So, uh, you know, so both those dogs, so Belle, Belle was 16 and a half when she passed away and hunted through 15 years of age. So she hunted 16 seasons and, and legitimately hunted. So I, I have, I have a freezer full of birds from that season that like, I kept thinking, well, that's the last bird. So I got to mount that bird. And like, she had a successful season, um, the, the final season. So when she was 16, so her 17th season, that was ceremonial. Like there was no, like it, age had caught up to her at that point in time, but like at 16, that that's doing pretty damn good. Um, at 14 and 15, she probably hunted like most seven-year-old dogs. I mean, so she really looked good. She went through a period in about, oh, when she was eight to 10, where she had back issues. And, and I find that a lot of people retire dogs in that, at that time frame. Um, oftentimes they misdiagnosis, diagnose it as arthritis or the vet says, oh, it must be the hips. Here's your anti-inflammatories. And oftentimes it's disc issues. And so just like people have lower back pain and, and disc issues, these athletic dogs have disc issues. And so the, the big thing for me is, is making sure that you have accurate diagnoses of what's going on and where the pain's coming from. And that's like with Memphis's case, you know, like likely the anaplasmosis has affected that stuff, but sometimes then we have compensatory muscle issues that result. And so, uh, you know, I imagine as, you know, a former athlete that like you have the aches and pains, right. And there's times that like you're limping and you compensate. And so it's like, God, why is my sciatic on this side hurt? It's the, you know, right ankle that I have problems. Well, it's because you're shifting away from that right ankle pain. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so as these dogs age, I think it's, it's having them in the hands of a, of a athletic dog veterinarian that knows how to, to delineate that. Uh, it's just like with human athletes as we age, you know, when I was marathoning in my twenties and thirties, like I was bulletproof. Right. And and now I go to freaking PT, like at least once a month and, and, and sometimes more if I'm active and it's allowed me to return to running. And so, you know, I, I didn't think I'd ever marathon again and, and I'm back running quite a bit and, and lifting and doing things that I'd kind of given up on because of some aches and pains. And I think the same thing has to happen with these dogs is we got to be aware of, you know, is it, is it a problem that the activity is going to make worse? And so there are some of those arthritic conditions that, you know, it, it, it may not be the best path, but there are some functional changes that occur that, that, you know, they probably need physical therapy or, you know, in, in the canine world, we call it rehabilitation. Um, so getting an accurate fix on what their ailments are and, and, and then kind of, you know, playing within their bounds. I think the other thing that happens and probably even more so is we get that older dog that starts slowing down. And so then we feel guilty about it. And so then we give them more treats because food is something they love. Then that dog gets obese and then the, the joint issues, the, the mobility issues and all of that kind of becomes a, a, a snowball effect rolling down the hill. And, and, and one of my, you know, pet peeves in practice is that guy that walks in with a eight, nine year old dog. That's just a specimen. And, he, you know, it's like, well, I think we're going to retire him. You know, why? And, and the answer is, well, because he's eight or nine. I'm like, gee, he's like, he looks perfect. He might hunt for four more years if you do things right. And so, also recognizing that age in and of itself is not a disease and, and trying to keep them young, feeding them appropriate foods. Um, you know, I think a lot of people make that the, the mistake of switching dogs to senior diets, uh, which are basically low calories, you know, back in the day when they first developed, they were low protein. And a lot of these geriatric athletes, you know, need high quality protein, high, you know, quality ingredients in order to keep that body from tearing down and keep them out in the field. So it's, it's, it's the big picture, right? Like identifying the problems, treating the problems, taking care of the body, um, and feeding that athlete correctly. Do you do any supplements? So sometimes, and so like, uh, the glucosamine chondroitin type of supplements is a big one that everybody jumps on. And I think we know as a profession that they don't get to the joints and actually repair them. But what we do know is that they probably deal with total body inflammation. And so my take on those supplements is give them a try. If you think they work, then continue with them. If you don't, then don't spend your money on them. And and some people will think, well, maybe they work, but I don't know. Then quit them for a couple of weeks and, and keep a journal. Like, you know, does the dog get up easier? Does he not? Does it seem like he's sore at the end of the day versus not and try to make some measurables of are those supplements working um the other would be the omega fatty acids same sort of thing you know you get a dog with arthritis having the omega-3 fatty acids i think can be a good thing um with arthritic dogs it's not really a supplement it's an actual drug adequine i think is it is something that a lot of people um should be on who aren't on and so i Early in my career, for whatever reason, like when it first came out before uh, Novartis and then Alanco had it, um, there wasn't a lot of the solid research that now exists. Like it is a great product and it, it, you know, they've proven that it goes from the injection site to the joints, repairs them. Um, it, it's any of those dogs with arthritic issues, I think should be on adequate um, as a, as a therapeutic. I have some sitting here in my office that I've been 
like hanging on to, if you will. Yeah. I'm so scared to give them to her. I shouldn't so be. You shouldn't be. And I've knock on wood. I've not had any sort of reactions with that drug. People get comfortable giving it with injections. Like, you know, even, you know, people that don't own a bunch of dogs or handle a bunch of dogs, we'll train them in clinic how to give the injection so that they can give it at home. It's a tapering. You give mm-hmm. them, you know, a lot in the beginning. And then the hope is you get down to once a month so that the, the first couple of months can be expensive for a lab size plus dog. But the hope is, is that you're tapering down. Um, and it, it's, it's a drug that, it does work and it's every arthritic dog should probably be on it. Okay. Well, whole map's about to get back on it then. <laughs> I did try it. I'll be honest with you. So I tried it, uh, a year or two ago when I did the PRP or right. PRP. Okay. Platelet replacement. Yeah. Protein rich placement. So platelets. So what, what did she do that for? Um, I had been reached out to by a company that was doing research on it. Uh, they had a success with horse horses and race horses. And so they were bringing it into the cat and dog world. And I drove to Vermont and they did it for her. Um, and I just didn't really see much results from it. Maybe so like three weeks of seeing specific, some results and into specific joints into her hips. Okay. into her knees and her hips. Okay. Um, what they saw on the x-rays is that she had many little tears in her knee Okay. that it never completely blew, but those little mini tears had some scar tissue sure. and that they think that's more why she's stiff. Right. And so, uh, so my, my soapbox on PRP. So I, I think it's a great modality. Um, it's, it's like so much so that I convinced my dad that he needed to get it because, you know, he'd had all the other like Synvisc and all the, the human preparations. And I'm like, you got to have PRP. The, the big thing on the canine side is kind of exactly what you said. It, it, we know like in horses and in humans, a lot of the products, when they look at, when they spin those products down, it, it maybe doesn't have the cellular makeup that they want for dogs. And so it's, I, I think there's a, a lot of the products out there that maybe aren't as effective and so point of my blizzard i wouldn't say you know like your experience with prp may not it would be different with a different company protect you know particularly if they're in the development stage uh, i think that's been one of the frustrations and and so i i have the equipment but i've yet to pull the trigger on administering it for this very reason like i think that i don't think we, we tried to just apply what we know in horses to dogs and i don't think it's worked as we hoped um i do think there are probably some better systems than others out there but it's it's one that i, I think it's a pick your battle situation um and, and that's where too you know especially if they eject it directly into the joint and that's when you did the adequin it could be that that caused inflammation in the joint you know that that you, you know where it, it wouldn't be and so I'm, I'm not a shotgun treater like i say right. let's start this one thing and so we can evaluate if it works or not so that we're not so that you know, that's exactly what i did i didn't want multiple variables right. to determine which one worked or didn't so i had started adequan i felt like i had seen some improvement prp was coming and i'd ran out so i'm like right. okay i didn't see a drastic improvement let's sure. just cut that off did the prp saw some improvement and then like i bet 2 months after it, it it's like it never happened Right. And then I just, I still have a stash over here that I should probably look at expiration date, but 
sure. You know, maybe I'll jump back on it because she's too good of a dog, too enjoyable to be around to go get three ducks and then later that night can't walk. Yeah. It'd be interesting to get you in the hands of, and, and we can talk, you know, off the podcast about um, maybe lining you up with the sports meds, but it'd be interesting to have someone with trained hands, get their hands on her to see what the muscle aspect is. Cause that's in veterinary medicine, even, and even still in vet schools, like we look at these dogs as bones and joints and there's a lot of soft tissue, you know, and, 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 and we don't, we don't get that training in veterinary medicine unless you seek it post vet school. I shouldn't say that. So Colorado state, Florida, Cornell, it, there, there are, you know, some places with pretty good sports medicine specialists there, um, mm-hmm. but, n- but not everywhere. And so the vast majority of veterinarians just, we still look at these dogs as bones and joints as opposed to the soft tissues that they're made of. So. Yeah. I can tell you her muscle atrophy in her back end is significant. Right. That's what it'd be interesting if we get her on appropriate, you know, exercise program to address that atrophy, if that would, would help her condition. Sure. Cool. Um, let's talk. I, I wrote down, you, you quickly said it and then we didn't go further in it. The cruciate ligament test in, and I'd like to hear what I that is. Right and, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I saw you writing. I figured we were going to circle back. Um, and, and so for, for years, we've felt that there was probably a genetic component to this. Right. And so back 20 plus years ago when I was in vet school, uh, the group at Iowa State had identified a gene in Newfoundland and one of those researchers had moved on to Labrador's. I thought we'd have this test, you know, 15 or 20 years ago. Um, And it just, I'm not sure like the behind the scenes of what took so long, but Wisconsin has finally come out with a a test that identifies some of the genes. Um, I think, you know, the gray area is going to be that you're still going to have dogs that have athletic cruciate injuries. And so it's, it's sorting this out in breeding programs, I think is, is a good thing, but I think it's also going to create some confusion both with breeders and with owners, because where I see it from my end is you get these guys that, you know, pay three to $5,000 for a puppy. And then, you know, the dog blows a cruciate before the first season blows a cruciate before the second season. And now they're, you know, 10 plus thousand dollars into a three-year-old dog that they've not spent one day in the field with. Um, and part of it is there are a lot of people breeding dogs that have bilateral TPLOs and breeding the crap out of them because they're really good in the field. And so uh, it's, it's, it's a moment that's needed to come. I think we're going to see other papers come out that kind of address this. Um, it's, and I, I don't know if my old podcast is available, but uh, Sarah Scholl from uh, Michigan State, we did a two episode cruciate podcast that we really go in depth into cruciates. Um, and it's Sarah's who my lab came from, um, and she runs field trial dog. She, she is into curly coats as well. Um, super knowledgeable and, and she's doing some things on, on the cruciate side of things as well. She wrote, um, an excellent series of articles in, um, retriever field trial news that's available online for download. And so it's, it's a massive problem and it's an expensive problem in veterinary medicine that the lab community has kind of like, because it's a fixable problem, I feel is just like turned a blind eye to it. My hope is, is that this Wisconsin research is at least going to open the discussion and, and start, you know, opening people up to making breeding program decisions around cruciates, which I don't think is happening right now in the majority of cases. Yeah, I I would agree with you. And I think it's because there's no hard discussion yet, or and this is the the precursor, the the beginning stages of the Correct. discussion. 
But why, you know, if Memphis blew her knee, why does that take her out of my breeding program? She spun sliding into a duck and blew it. Correct. But, and that's, and, and I think that that's you, where too, with the testing, you could say, yes, this dog had surgery, but genetically she's not passing these, these traits that we've identified that, that lead to it. And, and that's the, that's the, those are the decisions that people need to make because what happens is you don't want to eliminate every dog because then you're going to end up with EIC or some, you know, degenerative myelopathy on the Chesapeake side. It, it, it you know, if you, if you overcorrect, you end up with bigger problems. And so it's, it's, it's taking that big picture of we can get better, but let's not create a bigger monster by just, you know, wiping everybody out of the, the breeding pool. That's a carrier or, you know, test positive, but we can breed it to a clear dog in making those types of breeding decisions to breed around problems versus creating bigger problems. How long do you think it'll be until they have everything dialed in with real hard evidence and answers for us all to... I don't know. And the reason I say that is, is that I always think things should occur a little bit faster, like the further down the road we get with analytics and with, with computer programs, um, you know, like the EIC work, you know, they were doing that 20 years ago and then it became wildly, widely available. I don't know, 10 years ago, maybe. And, mm-hmm. and now we're kind of seeing slipping through the cracks with that because everybody was by parentage and people have kind of you know, we're two or three generations from that pie parrot each test. And, and we're back seeing a few EIC positive dogs out of lines that shouldn't have them because people thought they were buying, you know, EIC tested dogs when it was just through parentage. And so right. it's, I, I think it's, you know, how on board people get, but then also have the accurate information to, to make those decisions. Because, you know, like I talked about with the degenerative myelopathy, initially there was a bunch of kennels that were like, well, I'm not going to test. I've never seen that. I've never seen that in my kennel. So why would I even test? And are you not seeing it? Or are you not looking for it? Those are two different answers, you know? So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you think the cruciate problem is becoming more of a problem because people are taking better care of their dogs for saying he's limping two weeks goes by, he starts walking on a little better. I, I don't, I, I, I think it's, it's a, it's, it's a breeding problem. I think that like, we're not taking that into consideration. I mean, again, off air, we could probably talk and both of us could probably name studs that have bilateral TPLOs that have had the shit bred out of them, you know? And so <laughs> it's, I, I think it's a, 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 people have, because it's a fixable problem have turned a blind eye to it. And, you know, especially when you start talking in the competition world where, where stuff costs a lot of money, that surgery maybe isn't as big a deal where I'm dealing with these owners that, I mean, it's devastating, you know, and, and we're cheap here. And I hate to say that a $3,000 procedure is cheap, but we're cheap in Sioux Falls compared to Minneapolis or Des Moines or, you know, during the pandemic, we had people reach out from California. It was cheaper for them to come and get a VRBO in Sioux Falls and have the surgery and we could get them done sooner then the, you know, they were paying $10,000 in Southern California in, in, in a three or four month wait. And so it's, 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 it's an expensive procedure. And so I, I, I think that, you know, I watch people struggle with that decision, like, you know, so I don't, I don't think it is that I think we're seeing more volume of it and more people having to struggle. And that's the part I hate, you know, that, that guy that finally, you know, got the dog of his dreams. And I mean, it's just, you want to talk about punching somebody in the gut, you know, it's, 
well, he yeah. can't hunt this year. And, uh, you know, it's 3000 and likely is going to happen again in the six, next six to 24 months. And it's going to be another 3000. Like, and it's, it's a procedure that my personal opinion is it's ridiculously expensive for what it is in compared to other services within veterinary medicine. So. Gotcha. Is there any advice you can give someone whose dog had one knee done that can help postpone the other one or maybe eliminate? Yeah. It, doing the rehab, it, it, getting, getting in the hands of a rehab vet that, and so like every dog that comes in, that's in that high category. Like I, you know, if we can't get them in for surgery right away, we start a prehab program and I started on both legs during the post-surgical recovery. We're exercising and doing everything on both legs to, for that very reason. I think that part of the problem is particularly in Labradors is you could do, you could put the dog in a glass box and some of these dogs are going to tear their cruciates because of the pathology that's going on. And so I'm also one that, I, I don't put the dogs in the glass box, you know, like, in, you know, if people are like, Oh, I really don't want to go through it again. I'm more of the let's challenge that leg and see if we can make it stronger. And if it blows, then we address it and move on with the dog. That's now fully functional versus if you, you know, dink around, dink around, try to protect the leg, try to protect the leg. And now you got a dog that's five or six and then you blow it and kind of screws things up going forward. So I'm more of a, let's just challenge that good leg and either try to keep it good or you know if it's going to tear let's let's address it but it's it's a, i think with the the dogs that truly have this genetic potential i think it, I, I think they could sit in a glass box and they tear it and I, and i say that because we'll see these young labs come in they haven't done anything and they've already got super thick knees with pathology going on there gotcha are there other breeds that struggle with this Oh yeah. I just think it's the most widely spread, you know, because the lab's most popular dog. Right. And so, I mean, we see it in goldens and what's been shocking to me. So like all of my setters have been field dog stud book registered setters. And so I will be honest, I, I haven't required the health testing that, that I would buy in a lab or the cockers or things like that, because they were performance bred dogs that that I knew the breeder very very well like his program is is phenomenal and I didn't have those concerns what I've seen as I get to be an older guy in practice is like we're doing cruciate surgeries and pointers now um German wire hairs like I would have never early in my career like even thought of cruciate disease in German wire hairs short hairs like it's in 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 the common denominator is Americans breeding these dogs. And I think, you know, it's something we like about probably that structure in some of those dogs that, that, that we now are creating in it in dogs that earlier in my career, we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't have seen it. Like I, most of those pointing breed dogs wouldn't have ever thought of seeing a performance based injury like this. And, and now we see it quite regularly. Interesting. That's wild. What do you have on the top the docket for the rest of hunting season? You're going well, to Texas. Going to Texas. Uh, going to try to get a duck hunt down there. We're uh, it's it's uh, minus eighteen right now with a minus fifty wind chill here, and <laughs> and it quite quite a bit of snow over the whole state. So I, I, our pheasant season might be shot. In in the last two years, they've extended it to the end of January, so we have quite a bit of season left. But it's it's going to be a tough tough. It, the whole state's covered in snow right now, so this wow. Texas trip might be might be my my last hunt of the year until the snow geese start flying back north. Very good. Uh, do you have more dogs in your future? Are you thinking down that line? Or are you going to uh, hang on? Yeah. So 
right in the immediate no um i i i in the next couple of years like i'll for sure have another spaniel in the house like it just the house feels empty without a spaniel um and then uh i have a a client friend um who's now a dog trainer down in kansas he actually just got a pup that when he sent me the picture i i knew the chessy breeding on it right away i was like you know, it's, I said, does, does she have wild goose chase in her background? And he's like, yeah, several times. And so if that dog pans out, uh, I will be getting a chessy pup out of that litter, you know, two to three years cool. down the road. Cause it, it, I, it was, I knew exactly the breeding on that dog when he sent me your puppy picture. So. That's super cool. Well, cool. Anything else you'd like to leave us with my friend? No, it's great. Great chatting with you as always. And uh, anytime, enjoy the discussions. I really enjoy it too. I appreciate your expertise and your help with the advice on Memphis. And half of this stuff was selfish of me, but (laughs) I enjoyed it. Hey, join our community. If you enjoy the show, if you enjoy our YouTube, if you enjoy Instagram, it's like buying me and Kevin a beer. Join patreon.com forward slash Lone Duck Outfitters. The link is in the description. Click that link. Join the community. We've got tons of great videos, tons of great content, and you can ask me more questions. So join it. Enjoy it. We did it for you, and you're helping us produce a show. So thank you so much to that community. Get in, get out, let's roll. Patreon.com forward slash Lone Duck Outfitters. Hey listeners, Nick Larson here, host of the Bird Shop Podcast. As fans of this show, you may be interested in the conversations on the Bird Shop Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting, from upland birds and their habitat and conservation to the shotguns, bird dogs, and gear used to pursue them. Whether you're a seasoned upland hunter or just getting started and wanting to learn more, I interview a wide range of guests, each with their own unique perspective and valuable experience to share. If you're on the hunt for more upland hunting conversation, please consider subscribing to the Bird Shop Podcast today. Thank you.